This morning I'm reading from the book of Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Before I jump in, I want to make a little note about the the text. Um, If you look closely, you may notice that um, verse 37 is missing. (laughs) And if we were in Greek class, we could talk about why that is, all the different manuscript traditions, why some are considered more reliable than others. Uh, But we're not in Greek class, so um, just want to make you aware that I am aware a verse is missing, and the reason for that is that usually the shorter and the more difficult manuscripts are considered more reliable, which is why now they've taken out a verse, because it's shorter, right? Um, But that's a whole other topic that that I'm not going to talk any more about, other than to uh, make you aware that I am aware, and that's not a typo. So I'll start at verse 26, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candace, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot, stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the, Philip, or the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at the Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Boundaries are not necessarily bad. We set up boundaries all the time to protect ourselves and to protect other people. When I was a student in Toronto and I had to commute a couple times a week, I'd always take the GO train down to Union Station. And I think Union Station was under construction at least the full four years I commuted, probably still is. 
And so I became familiar with the sight of caution tape, the chain link fences that blocked off certain walkways, the warning or danger signs, the hard hat required beyond this point signs, the no pedestrians beyond this point signs. Boundaries are not always a bad thing. Sometimes they're set up for our safety. Now, if you were walking around Jerusalem in the first century, you'd also become familiar with fences, walls, warning signs, not at a construction site, but at the temple. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem was divided up by walls. And these walls were meant to divide people by tribe, by gender, and by ethnicity. See, in the very innermost part of the temple, there was a wall around the place where only the Levites could go. Only the priestly tribe could enter this part. And then outside there was an area walled off for other Jewish men. Outside that area, uh, walled off for Jewish women. And finally, on the very outside, there was a space for the rest of us, the non-Jewish people, for the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles, it was called. And the court of the Gentiles was set off by a shorter wall. Tall enough that you couldn't just skip over it, but short enough that the Gentiles could see what they were missing out on. Folks who went to the temple were, were familiar with the sight of walls, fencing them off from getting too close to God based on their ethnicity their gender, or their tribe. And there were warning signs, too. One warning sign in particular was posted for those Gentiles out on that shorter wall. Archaeologists have found a couple of copies of this sign that it would have been mounted on the wall to warn the Gentiles. Right, This was the shorter wall, about five feet tall, called a balustrade. And so any Gentile who got too close to the wall, who may have been tempted to pass by, would see the sign that said foreigners must not enter inside the balustrade or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. A generous interpretation of this would see it as a warning sign around a construction site, there to warn people for their own safety. God's law didn't allow the Gentiles to come any closer. And this sign was a visible reminder of those barriers between the Gentiles and God. This temple with its walls and different courtyards and warning signs is where the Ethiopian eunuch would have just been. We see in our passage, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. He took a tri trip to Jerusalem from the African Sahara Desert, somewhere around modern-day Sudan or very southern Egypt. Ethiopia in that day was the far ends of the earth as far as the Jews in Jerusalem were concerned. It would have been a very long and expensive trip to get to Jerusalem, even if he was traveling in the Lexus of his day. And so it shows a great deal of commitment to this Israelite God 
that he would go all the way to Jerusalem to worship. And if he's going to travel that far, you better bet he went to the temple. We might wonder what it'd be like to travel that distance, excited to offer worship to God, excited maybe to be part of this God-fearing community, to step out of the chariot in front of this majestic, beautiful, holy building, hungry to meet with God. And then to find that there are literal walls standing in your way, the equivalent of caution tape and warning signs mounted on those walls, just high enough to make sure you couldn't jump over, but short enough so you could see what you were missing out on. Of course, it's not just his ethnicity that puts him on the outside of the fence, though. His black body moving among the brown bodies of Israel is a symbol of his outsider ethnic status. But that is not the only thing that makes him an outsider in Jerusalem. He's also a eunuch. So whether or not he actually would have even been permitted into the court of the Gentiles is itself questionable. But you know what a eunuch is, right? In most cases, it's a male who is born with all the biological male parts and often prior to puberty would have under undergone castration. Now, if it was done early enough, this would have major consequences for the boy's hormones as he developed. He wouldn't grow the facial hair or go through those same bodily changes that his testosterone-filled friends might have. This would have been done in hopes that this young boy could grow up and serve in the royal courts, to serve in some royal function. In other circumstances, grown men would choose to be castrated so that they could advance their careers in government. See, eunuchs were often assistants to the royals at the time, not because they were asexual, but because they could never be dominant. They could never establish a competing dynasty to the king. And in fact, eunuchs were more often seen as equal opportunity partners and were the objects of violence, even sexual violence. And so we should really do away with any naive assumptions about eunuchs being equated with chastity or being asexual in every case. Eunuchs in the Bible represent a complicated and a complex identity. Neither fully male and not female. On one hand, privileged in their social status, in their proximity to royalty. I mean, he was riding in a Lexus, after all. On the other hand, objects of disdain and violence, even sexual violence. Added to the cultural significance of being a eunuch is the religious significance. From a Jewish perspective, eunuchs were considered unclean. Not unclean in the sense that they had to go wash in the pool, or isolate for a time before coming into God's presence, but perpetually unclean, unable to get clean, perpetually excluded from the ritual life of Israel, kept at a distance from God. 
Now, we don't know if the eunuch in this story chose this life or if it was forced on him from a young age, but we can be reasonably certain that this one who went to Jerusalem to worship God was kept on the outside. And a generous interpretation would see that the Jews really thought this was for his own good. It was in the law of Deuteronomy, after all, that as an Ethiopian eunuch, he could not be permitted in the assembly of God without being in grave and mortal danger. We're still in the business of putting up fences and warning signs around God. A generous interpretation of our warning signs and fences is that we are concerned for the well-being of folks haphazardly coming into the presence of a holy God, perhaps an unrepentant sin or something. I mean, we can pull the verses from the Bible just like the Jews did when they put up those signs around the temple. That's a generous interpretation of our fences and walls. But God might be interested in challenging us on some of that. Claire Davidson Frederick shared in a sermon on this text about one Sunday evening in her church in Nashville, Tennessee. The church had a service that was just congregational singing, a kind of hymn sing night. And it was led by people in the congregation. At the time, she was 10 years old, and she really loved music. She'd been taking piano lessons for a few years. And so she went to the service ready to lead the congregation in her favorite song from the hymnal. When it came time for people to volunteer to lead the music, her, her little hand shot up in the air. But her mother looked at her, horrified, and pushed her hand back to the seat. You can't do that. You're a girl, she whispered harshly to little Claire. And Claire had to try with all her might to push the lump in her throat down. This was her first run-in with the walls that her church had put up around worship. Now, when I chose to preach on this text some weeks ago, it was clear to me that this would somehow be about God's mission extending to people we consider outsiders. I thought it would be a nice compliment to the story we heard last week when the risen Jesus appears to two disciples on the road, when they get this kind of awesome Bible study from Jesus. I thought these two stories would work really well together, right? God showing up on the road to disciples and now on a road again showing up to this outsider. What I wasn't prepared for was just how relevant it would feel, even how convicting it would be in its specificity. Here is someone in the Bible who was not allowed to fully participate in the life of God's people because of his ethnicity and because of his sexuality. He is a black Ethiopian eunuch. Interesting, though, that my NIV translation labels this section as Philip and the Ethiopian. Interesting because the text itself refers to him as a eunuch six times and as an Ethiopian just once. We are no doubt more open to some parts of his identity than others, 
but I am more and more convinced that this is a person we need to see in front of us. When 10 a.m. on Sundays is still the most segregated hour in North America, and when almost 50% of trans and non-binary youth have attempted suicide at some point in their lives. These are the people who could look at the situation of the Ethiopian eunuch, and even if it's not an exact replication, they would be able to identify with him in his difference and his complex identity. We desperately need to see this Ethiopian eunuch in his fullness when we open our Bibles. Because we are still putting up those walls, whether they are well-intentioned or not. Those walls that will keep him and people like him far from God. And when we see him in his fullness, having worshipped God only on the outskirts of the temple, and coming away with only a souvenir scroll of Isaiah to show for it, the next thing we ought to do is look for what God does. And for every wall and warning sign that has been put up around this eunuch's access to God, God goes about the good work of smashing right through them and chasing after him. God now seeks out the one who has been warned to stay away from God. The Holy Spirit prompts Philip to lace up his running shoes, to head out on the road, Go track down that Lexus leaving town. The eunuch couldn't get to God in Jerusalem, so now God is going to chase after him as he leaves. Go, the Holy Spirit tells Philip twice. Go south to the road. Good, now see that chariot? Now go, go catch up to it. Go stay near it. God is breaking down this barrier of space by sending Philip outside the holy city. And once Philip catches up, he hears the eunuch reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Philip stops him and asks, hey, do you understand all that? The Ethiopian eunuch is honest. Well, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And so he scooches over on the seat to make room for Philip, you know, it looks like we're heading in the same direction anyway. You want to hop in? I could use some help. Now, a lot has been made about the eunuch reading from the scroll of Isaiah. After all, the prophet in Isaiah tells of a day when foreigners and eunuchs who seek God will be welcomed into the assembly. And it's reasonable to expect that he came across this passage and read it with expectation and hope. Not that he necessarily had experienced that welcome himself. But that's not the passage that Philip hears him reading. Philip hears him reading about a silent lamb, about to be offered up as a sacrifice. Someone who had been deprived of justice, who had no descendants, whose life was taken from the earth. Tell me, the eunuch asked Philip, who is the prophet talking about? Is it just himself? Or is it someone else? 
commentators note a hint of expectation in his voice. Could he be talking about someone like me? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Last week we heard about that Bible study on the road that ended with Jesus' disciples encountering uh, the risen Jesus in his glory. Here we see another Bible lesson on a road, this time for a different audience. And this time it is not the risen Jesus who makes himself known. It is the sacrificial lamb, familiar with suffering, deprived of justice. The eunuch now encounters God in Jesus Christ, the one who knows suffering, who knows what it is to be cut off, to suffer in silence, Maybe he thought that God could only be encountered in the rites and the ceremonies of the temple, in that big, majestic, beautiful building, or in the communal festivals that he wasn't invited to join. But God breaks down that barrier and encounters the eunuch in the first place, in a familiar place, in the suffering of Jesus, not in his glory. As the chariot keeps bouncing along the road, they hear some water in the distance. And God brings him to another place of encounter, to the waters of baptism. Look, the eunuch says, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? The commentator Tom Long answers the question according to the religious norms of the day. For one thing, he was living in Ethiopia. So he was cut off from the land of Israel. And he was a eunuch and thus in violation of the purity code. And he was a member of the cabinet of the queen of Ethiopia and therefore loyal to the wrong sovereign. In sum, he belonged to the wrong nation, he held the wrong job, and possessed the wrong sexuality. In other words, there were a whole lot of barriers that Philip might have named if not for the good news of the gospel that in Jesus Christ, those barriers had not only been overcome, but destroyed. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, verse 14, Jesus Christ destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. In Jesus' body, the silent lamb before its shearers, God has reconciled all those to God who were previously outside the walls, and he did this through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now God can seek after this double outsider with a complex and complicated identity in order that he would be joined to Christ in the waters of baptism. We would have already identified with Christ in his death and suffering. But in the waters of baptism, he would be joined to Christ in his resurrection as well. As the theologian Willie Jennings observes, God has broken down the connection between identity and destiny, between definition and determination. The complexities of his life no longer prescribe a way of life because he has been found in Christ. And his flesh is now bound through the Spirit, 
in baptism. For all the walls and barriers and warning signs that we put up that prevent people from getting to God, we should have our ear to the ground to hear how the Spirit is calling us to lace up our shoes, to go after the ones who have been turned away, the ones who come wanting to participate, but run up against our walls and warnings instead, even if we are well-intentioned. The Spirit calls us to go after the ones who got the welcome packet souvenir that speaks of a welcome they did not receive. God, have mercy on us who are not attentive to the wall-crushing, boundary-pushing call of the Holy Spirit to seek them out, to share the good news of the suffering servant who is familiar with their pain and who invites them into his joy. If we've always been on the inside of the walls, we might resonate better with the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to meeting the risen Christ in scripture, in the breaking of bread and fellowship and community. But there are others among us who will resonate better with this story of the one who was turned away from the presence of God at the temple. You may read the story of the suffering servant, like he did, and wonder if it has anything to do with your pain. You read scripture and wonder if your story is anywhere in sight. If Jesus knows anything about your pain and what it's like to experience injustice, or even just to not have the spouse and the kids and the grandkids built into your community, to not be from the right place or have the right job, it is the suffering Christ who seeks you out, who has destroyed the walls of hostility, and who invites you to be joined to him in the waters of baptism, into his death, so that you would experience the joy of his resurrection. Like the Apostle Paul tells us, it is through him that we both have access to the Father by one Spirit, Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God of justice and compassion, thank you for this gift of your word, for the ways it challenges us, comforts us, and shows us your heart and your mission. Help us to believe what we have heard to break down the walls in our own hearts and help us to live in ways that honor you. Amen.